from Hollywood, I'm Martin Grove, welcoming you to our Screen Dollars podcast, Box Office Autopsy. In today's conversation, we'll look at the marketplace and analyze how things are going and where they're going. Joining me on the line now is Screen Dollars box office guru, Dick Walsh. Between Dick's career in exhibition, including as film chairman of AMC Entertainment, and my own days talking about movies on CNN, Entertainment Tonight, and as a Hollywood Reporter columnist, we've logged nearly a hundred years in Hollywood. That doesn't mean we're always right, but we've definitely got a few opinions to share. was a strong weekend at the Thanksgiving box office, particularly considering that this pandemic is not over yet. Yeah, uh, people uh, absolutely showed up at the box office. As a comparison, uh, our box office for this year versus last year, we very rarely refer to last year, but let's let's pause and reflect. Our box office this year is up 64.8% for the weekend over uh, 2020 and shows that people are definitely returning uh, to the theater and the, the product proved uh, substantial enough that uh, people wanted to see what was at the box office. Well, you know, I think you've made a strong point there because the people who came to the box office this weekend were families with young children and adults. Uh, Both of those demos are the ones that the media has been saying over and over and over, oh, they're afraid to go to the movies, they're not going, they're thinking twice, Uh, they got other things to do, they'll stay home and stream what can be streamed. But it turned out the families wanted to see Encanto, the adults wanted to see House of Gucci, and they were happy to turn up. Of course, it was a, a nice touch that neither one of those films was streaming day and date. That always helps. Yes, and, uh, you know, when, when the product is such that people will return to the marketplace, as you said, there was concern about animated pictures, and uh, I, I believe uh, this, this one uh, actually set a record, and Canto set a pandemic record, didn't it? It did, it did, with $40.3 million for five days, uh, and Canto uh, from Disney is the best pandemic animated opening uh, that we've had to date, and again, it benefited from not streaming day and date. Um, It was a strong performer. Uh, It certainly helps that a lot of youngsters have now uh, been vaccinated for COVID, COVID, so their parents were, you know, perfectly fine taking them to uh, to movie theaters. And it was that, that strong weekend. Uh, the picture, by the way, also did well internationally. It did uh, a little over $29 million in 39 international markets, not yet including China. Uh, the global cum is now almost $70 million. And this was an expensive picture.
picture at 120 million to produce, but not overwhelmingly. It's not a 250 million dollar kind of movie. So I think Disney is going to be very good, and it is a film that satisfies its uh, its audience. Uh, we have a scene that uh, I want to play for our listeners right now, uh, just to set it up. Uh, the the uh, heroine is a young girl named Mirabelle who lives in the mountains of Colombia, and she's dealing with being unlike everyone else in her family because she has no magical gift. Let's listen. What are you doing? Uh, they were just asking about the family and... She was about to tell us about her super awesome gift! Oh, Mirabel didn't get one. You didn't get a gift? Um... Mirabel! Delivery! I gave you the special since you're the only Madrigal kid with no gift. I call it the not special special since, uh, you have no gift. Thanks. Oh, and tell Antonio good luck. Last gift ceremony was a bummer. Last one being yours that, that did not work. Mm-hmm. If I was you, I'll be really sad. Well, my little friend, I am not. Because the truth is, gift or no gift, I am just as special as the rest of my family. Who wants more cake? All right, guys, where do I drop the wagon? Maybe your gift is being in denial. That's Mirabelle talking about uh, how she is going to uh, do very well despite not having a magical gift. And the music uh, from this picture uh, by uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is very good and very hummable, uh, very memorable, uh, you know, just nice uh, family fare, and, and it certainly did well. Uh, the uh, the audience for this picture uh, is uh, in love with it, uh, and so are the critics, for that matter. On Rotten Tomatoes, it's 92% fresh with the critics, and the audience score is 93%. So, uh, you know, all of that is uh, is very, very good. Now, in the case of House of Gucci, you have a totally different audience. This is the adult audience. And once again, Dick, isn't this the group that uh, so many uh, people uh, who, who think they know where the movie business is going have been saying, ah, adults, forget it. They, they don't go to the movies anymore. Yeah, another collective sigh of relief in, in Hollywood, uh, realizing that... Uh, Again, you you put product out there that a demo wants to see. They're going to go see it, and uh, this was this was necessary. Uh, we remember Ridley Scott's last picture, Last Duel, uh, did nothing compared to House of Gucci. That's right, and I remember us on this very box office autopsy podcast saying, fortunately for Ridley Scott, he has House of Gucci coming up soon, because in Hollywood, as they say, you're only as good as your last picture. Well, House of Gucci has opened to almost $22 million for five days. The projections had been somewhere around 2022, so uh, it's certainly at the, at the high end of uh, where people thought it would go. It is the best pandemic adult title debut, uh, which is certainly nice for uh, for MGM, which is the uh, studio that's uh, re releasing it. Uh, and it's an awards contender. Uh, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. 
minute, but let's listen to this film clip in which Lady Gaga and Adam Driver are having a heated dispute about widespread sales of fake Gucci products. Who is making this stuff? Who's allowing this to happen? As far as fakes go, they're pretty good. I mean, I'd, I'd buy them. <laughs> Don't be such a cretin. Don't call me a cretin, sweetie. That's not what I said. I asked you not to be one. This is serious. And you're laughing it off. Well, at least it's my name on the mugs, not yours. Our name, sweetie. On Jack. And that was Lady Gaga and Adam Driver talking about Gucci fakes. Well, I think that uh, Oscar voters are going to be talking about both of their performances and possibly some others from the film, as well as uh, Best Picture prospects and Best Directing uh, prospects for Ridley Scott. This, uh, this picture will be driven with its audience because, Dick, when we talk about the adult audience, they are uh, more uh, susceptible to... Uh, uh, awards talk because they want to see quality films. I, I believe that's uh, that's what I've always heard. Yeah, and there's a, there's a few more uh, holiday films left that are for Academy Award consideration. But you've got to say that House of Gucci opened and made its case here uh, to be uh, absolutely considered. The audience uh, is 85 percent positive. I think they would have liked to see that number very high, but there's going to be positive word of mouth on the picture. Well, yes, I think the fact that the audience score is pretty good uh, is uh, is important. Uh, unfortunately for House of Gucci, the uh, critics on Rotten Tomatoes are a very soft 61%. Uh, this is the kind of film where reviews do matter, or certainly could matter. Uh, I know, you know, so many times we say, well, reviews are not good, but you know, it's an action film, it doesn't really make a difference. But uh, in the case of House of Gucci, uh, uh, I'm sure they would have uh, loved to have seen a stronger, you know, critical uh, uh, percentage there. Now, talking about films that um, that don't need uh, critical support and frankly didn't get it uh, is the third film that opened over Thanksgiving weekend and that was from Sony and Screen Gems. It's the R-rated horror reboot Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. Uh, this was counter-programming for the young adult crowd, but it didn't work well, and uh, I think we can uh, call it our Thanksgiving turkey. Uh, it wound up five days doing $8.8 million. Uh, projections had been for somewhere in the 10 to $12 million range, and uh, that certainly doesn't uh, put it off to a good start, does it, Dick? No, and uh, this is one where they've gone to the well maybe once too often. Uh, credit to them, uh, Sony and Screen Gems brought it in for $25 million, and that might allow them to see some profitability. 
Yeah, actually, you know, uh, when all worldwide uh, revenue streams come in, you know, all the streaming and the cable and the syndication and all of that stuff, uh, they probably uh, will come out okay. It didn't help this film that Mia Jovovich, who had starred in the franchise since it began in 2002, uh, was not in this reboot. Uh, maybe if they had... Uh, stayed the course with her, uh, uh, the fans would have come back for that. Uh, now, uh, coming back to uh, the uh, topper, top part of the box office, because Raccoon City opened in fifth place, but coming back to uh, the second weekend of Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, this picture shared the family audience with Encanto. Uh, certainly Encanto would probably have done better if it didn't have to compete for families with Ghostbusters Afterlife. In Weekend 2, Afterlife uh, did uh, almost $25 million, and uh, it was only down 44%, which certainly was uh, was a very good hold. So uh, that, that could not have made uh, the Disney people happy to have that still in the marketplace. No, they were in direct competition, and it shows the size of the market that can come out to see movies over the Thanksgiving weekend. And the fact that it only dropped 44%, uh, there's a pretty clean run here for now and certainly the early part of December. So look for Ghostbusters to hang in there uh, very well. Yeah, and you know, between the, the two family films, uh, Encanto and Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, roughly if you add up those, those five-day numbers, you've got around $65 million. And that's a lot of money for families uh, to have spent, particularly when so many media pundits were saying, uh, forget families, they're, they're not going anywhere, they're not coming out. But uh, but they were there. Now, what was conspicuously missing from uh, this holiday weekend, and you and I actually touched on this uh, going into Thanksgiving, and uh, we were right to point it out, uh, was uh, what would have been the centerpiece dish on the Thanksgiving box office buffet. And that would have been Paramount and Skydance Media's Top Gun Maverick, starring, of course, Tom Cruise. It was supposed to have opened on November 19th, but it got pushed back to next Memorial Day weekend, where it will certainly uh, do a huge business. And, Dick, this picture could have done, uh, uh, I'm going to say, maybe another $100 million. What do you think? Well, you, you would have certainly closed the gap. Instead of being only 53% of 2019, we might have been 90% of 2019. And, you know, you might be right about $100 million. I think certainly $70 million would be a very doable number. And it's funny that we're in a business where one picture moving can, infect, can affect an entire holiday season, the two-week period, without that in the marketplace. And we got the results we got. So kudos for the pictures that actually held in there and actually went out. And Paramount's got to be wondering, did we make a mistake here? 
Ah, well, we're going we're gonna to find out, but I'll tell you, our friends at Comscore, who track the marketplace so well and so carefully, have put the uh, overall uh, three-day Thanksgiving weekend at about $97.3 million. So, look, if we had had Top Gun Maverick, we could have doubled that or certainly come close to doubling it, and uh, that, that would have been, uh, uh, you know, uh, as good as it gets. But, look, there's always the future, and, uh, you know, speaking of the future, uh, next weekend uh, it's going to be quiet, but we'll find something to talk about, I'm sure. No wide openings. But in two weeks from now, there is a high-profile musical from Steven Spielberg through Disney and 20th Century Studios, and that is his remake of West Side Story. Uh, we're going to talk about that, but let's just set it up first, and who better than Steven Spielberg himself to tell us why he wanted to make this movie, which is based on the classic 1957 stage musical. Here's Steven Spielberg talking about that. He's a for us somewhere a place for us this is a tradition on all of our movies where we toast the first shot and we toast the last shot and I just want to say that we have been actually in production on this for months the choreography the dance rehearsals the music We've all been doing this with Gustavo Dudamel and David Newman conducting the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Janine Tesori's work, getting everybody primed and ready to sing these great songs, as great as anybody has ever sung them. But now, to actually bring all those elements together as one voice into an ensemble. It's a very relevant story. To the times we now live in. I'm just so proud and honored that I got this shot late in my career <laughs> of being able to tell this story directly based on the 1957 Broadway musical. Go! Skyscrapers blooming America, America. I'm so proud to be here. And that was Steven Spielberg uh, recalling uh, his uh, childhood thoughts about West Side Story and why he wanted to make that movie. Um, the movie uh, is is getting a great deal of attention, and sadly, uh, it, it made some headlines uh, this weekend when news came out that Stephen Sondheim, who wrote the fabulous lyrics, the music is by Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim passed away at age 91. And so uh, West Side Story made uh, some of the headlines that, uh, you know, that you don't want to make headlines that way. Now, right. uh, oh, go ahead. Well, just that, um, you know, with, with this picture, uh, you know, we've got to be wondering, what do we have here? Do we have a Chicago 
that does a couple hundred million dollars at the box office, or do we have a cast that does twenty-five million at the box office? Or do we have something in the middle? Uh, I'm inclined to think in the middle here. Um, the tracking is showing that the best definite interest is from younger women. Uh, under 25 women, they're about four points over the norm. The second best demo is a tie between uh, 25 plus men and 25 plus women. So it's a pretty broad potential audience. Um, people who are too young to have seen the original 1961 film, which, uh, which was uh, an Oscar winner, uh, uh, know of it. And they also know of the stage musical. Certainly the music is, uh, is familiar music to lots of people. So um, they, they have that going for them. And uh, look, as always, we'll, uh, we'll be here to uh, check it out and report on uh, whatever it is that happens. I guess with West Side Story, we'll, we'll give you the whole box office story here next week on Box Office Autopsy. Meanwhile, thanks for listening. Time now for our film flashback look at what was happening in Hollywood right around now, way back then. Let's set today's time travel dial for November 26th, 1942. Casablanca is one of the most iconic Hollywood films ever made. But when it premiered in New York, November 26th, 1942, no one thought much of it. Ingrid Bergman hadn't wanted to play Ilsa opposite Humphrey Bogart's Rick. She really was in love with the idea of playing Maria opposite Gary Cooper in Paramount's For Whom the Bell Tolls. She got the role, but she's remembered for Casablanca. Bogart didn't like Casablanca and told Orson Welles during production, I'm in the worst picture I've ever been in. Paul Onreed was unhappy. Selznick International loaned him to Warner Brothers to play Victor Laszlo. He'd just starred with Betty Davis in Now Voyager and felt playing a secondary role would hurt his romantic lead status. Casablanca was based on a 1940 unproduced play, Everybody Comes to Rick's, by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison. At MGM, Louis B. Mayer vetoed buying the movie rights for $5,000. It was read at Warner Brothers December 8, 1941, a day after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. And story editor Irene Lee pushed Jack Warner to okay paying $20,000 for it. Studios suddenly needed pictures with patriotic themes. Two weeks later, producer Hal Wallace moved ahead, changing the title to echo Warner Brothers' exotic 1938 hit, Algiers. Composer Max Steiner hated the song As Time Goes By, which Burnett loved, that came from the 1931 Broadway musical Everybody's Welcome. Steiner wanted to write his own song, but Bergman's hair had already been cut short, 
for bell tolls, so her scenes couldn't be reshot with Dooley Wilson, who actually was a drummer pretending to play piano. Time wasn't eligible for an Oscar nom. But Warner Brothers didn't expect awards for Casablanca. It won, of course, in March 1944 for director Michael Curtiz, adapted screenplay Julius and Philip Epstein and Howard Koch, and Best Picture. When the big win was announced, Jack Warner rushed on stage with what Wallace called a broad-flashing smile and a look of great self-satisfaction. I couldn't believe it was happening. Casablanca had been my creation. Jack had absolutely nothing to do with it. As the audience gasped, I tried to get out of the row of seats and into the aisle, but the entire Warner family sat blocking me. Best Picture wasn't the night's last award in 1944. Four acting wins followed, as did the honorary Thalberg Award, which went to Wallace, his second one. Stories broke the next day about a Wallace-Warner rivalry. A month later, Warner ended Wallace's contract, and he went into independent production with hits like the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis comedies, Elvis Presley movies, and John Wayne's True Grit. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another box office autopsy next week. In Hollywood for Screen Dollars, I'm Martin Grove. Thank you.